Well, would you open your Bibles this morning to the book of Revelation? Uh, we're going to be studying chapter 6, verses 9 through 17, and, and then we're going to go back to chapter 5, verses 1 through 9, and how it uniquely points us to the resurrection of our Lord. On behalf of our elders, obviously, I want to uh, just wish everyone a happy, happy, happy Resurrection Sunday. Uh, it's probably one of the greatest greetings we could give you. If my dad were here, my dad's side of the family is Syrian uh, from Damascus, and so I grew up hearing Al-Masih, um, which means Christ is risen. Um, and I wrote this down in Spanish. I took Spanish when I was in school, but I don't hardly remember anything unless I'm reading it. Uh, for those uh, among us who speak Spanish, Cristo ha resucitado. Well, come on, you got to give me something for that. <laughs> Barnabas, what is Christ is risen in Nepali? Now, see, you, you, that was, you gave him some, some respect. That, actually, I'm glad I asked you to say that, my brother. Oh, my goodness. Well, would you join me in the reading of God's word? If, if you're with us, I'm going I'm to ask you to stand in as a, an expression of respect and reverence and honor. Um, and we share this with our church family all the time. Uh, we're, we're opening a book that is unlike any other book. This is not a sports page. This isn't a book. This isn't an academic article. This is God communicating his perfect love to us and how he's revealed it in Jesus Christ. So let's listen for the voice of the Lord. Revelation chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth and the full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to earth and the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. And then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? That's why we're going to go back to chapter 5 now, because that's an important question. Who can stand in regard to the righteous judgment of God? Well, there's some good news for us. Chapter 5, verse 1. 
And then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll. And open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Oh, Heavenly Father, oh, Heavenly Father, would you please communicate your perfect love, your perfect forgiveness. God, we also need you to communicate through your word your perfect righteousness and the wrath that our sins deserve. Lord, we we want to pay attention to the bad news so that we'll get the most grace out of the good news. God, for anyone here who hasn't met you as their Lord and Savior, would you please open their heart? like you did Barnabas's, like you did mine, like you did any Christian here. Please melt our hard heart. Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to behold the Lamb. For your glory we ask it, and for the joy of all those who hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. And thanks so much for standing. I have to admit, I was a little discouraged this week when I came across a statement someone made about why Christians celebrate Easter and the purpose of an Easter sermon. So I read a little bit further and they said, you know, it's really not that much different from how non-Christians celebrate spring. They said it was essentially the Christian's way of doing a little bit of spring cleaning. That broke my heart. It's just freshening things up a little bit. It's a little pep talk to help shake off the effects of winter and prepare for the heat of summer. I am so thankful for the privilege, along with Hugh and with Alan, of pastoring a church that does not come on Easter Sunday for a little spiritual pep talk about Easter. But it does raise a question. What sort of sermon do you expect on Easter Sunday? Oh, I wish I could have a cup of coffee with you over that question. What kind of sermon do you expect on Easter Sunday? Well, my hope is that you would want to be reminded 
of how desperately we needed the crucifixion and resurrection. I would really hope that that would be one of the reasons you're here. I would hope that's what you want to hear, our desperate need for a risen Savior. My hope is that you would want an Easter sermon that would not just prepare you for tomorrow and just get by, but prepare you to experience a joyful eternity with Christ. I, I hope you want to hear that kind of a sermon. My hope is that you would want a sermon that wouldn't just freshen you up a bit, but instead offer you the hope of being transformed. Listen, guys, we don't need to be, that's what, like putting lipstick on a pig, isn't it? I'm not trying, that's, I came to church to be insulted by the past. I'm not, I'm not trying to do that. But isn't it true? There's something true about that. We don't need freshening up. We need total transformation. And I hope you want to hear about how that's possible in Jesus Christ. We need to be equipped for the mission of Christ. We want to be transformed into the image of Christ. My hope is that you would want to hear an Easter sermon that speaks about a new life in Christ that is so glorious that it's worth dying for. I hope that's what you want to hear this morning. I wonder how many of you wondered what kind of Easter sermon you were going to hear today when we were reading through Revelation. I think it's a wonderful Easter sermon to look at this morning. So let's, let's, let's fasten our seatbelts. Let's ask the Lord, please, we don't, we, don't, we don't want to push away the hard parts because it'll rob us of just how deeply loved we are by a Savior who gave his own life to bear the wrath of God that we deserved. I hope this has given you a little taste for what our texts this morning are perfect to promote. That we would be able to leave this place responding to the resurrection of Christ worshipfully and missionally. Those are all my hopes for the morning. Here's the main point. It's in, your, it's in your notes. Precious ones, you will never need to fear the wrath of the Lamb toward you when you have trusted in the wrath that fell upon the Lamb for you. And even more, you will receive a reason for living that is so glorious that it is worth dying. So the first point is the merciful patience of the Lamb. And we see this in chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. John, if you, if you weren't with us last week, you could go and, and listen to the, uh, the sermon off of our website. John's vision of the four horsemen and the wars and the plagues and the hyperinflation and the natural disasters, the food scarcities, all of those things... Um, Actually, the teaching of that brought the first century church, and it also can bring us really great confidence and comfort in knowing that Christ is the one ruling over these occurrences from his ascension to his second coming. And, and what he's doing, precious ones, is he's actually accomplishing something. He's accomplishing God's purposes in the judgment of his enemies and the redemption of his people. There was, I didn't get to read it today, but you might go back there. Um, Desiring God had an article today, or maybe it's a sermon by David Mathis, I think. But it talked about how watching the news can actually be encouraging. 
And I think I know where he was going. I think there's a way for us to be able to, to be sobered by wars and rumors of wars and by man's inhumanity to man and, and, and starvation and natural disasters and all these things. But I think when we're remembering, wait a minute, God's ruling over this and he's moving history forward so that people from every nation and tongue and tribe can be saved. And he's moving us forward so that, so that there will come one final day and he'll make all things new. That's, I think that's a, that's a very healthy way to watch the news. And I have to confess to you, I don't always watch the news that way. I'm a guy who yells at the TV more than I praise God that he's in control. So I want to change. I hope that will give you a desire to change too. So, so that's what's preceding this. And now as John is opening the fifth seal, the scene shifts from what is happening on earth to where we get this vision of what is happening in heaven, including right now. We learn that the persecution is not shrinking the church. So remember, all these four horsemen are coming out, and there's wars and violence and all of these things, and there's great persecution taking place. And, and that's where... That's where we're seeing this, this moving forth of God judging his enemies, judging evil, and allowing man's own sinful heart to, to bear the consequences that sin deserves. And, and, that's how, and, and it's in its, its most nationalistic sense, that includes war. And so God allows us to experience temporary judgment, warning us of final judgment through things like war. He's in control of that, and as the wars increase, so does the persecution against Christians. But that means the church is not shrinking. I, th I, think, I think when we read texts like this, we think, gosh, I bet that really shrunk the church. I bet that really stopped the growth of the church. Well, you know as well as I do. These martyrs are increasing in number because the church is increasing in number. God is on his throne. And he is having victory even in the darkest times on our planet. By saving sinful people like me. Those martyrs started it with Stephen. And they've been growing right up until our day. In fact, in the last 10 years, over 100,000 people have been martyred for their witness for Christ. In the 20th century alone, more people died for Christ than in the preceding 1900 years combined. Why? Because the church is growing. Because the gospel is winning. And the devil is losing, which sounds obvious, but let's say it anyway. It just kind of feels good to say. Persecution is not stopping the growth of Christ's church and it's a reflection that God's plan is unstoppable to save people from every nationality, every ethnicity on earth. John sees these believers who have suffered or have been killed for their faith under a heavenly altar. And that's important for us to stop to realize. Sometimes I think if you go to a funeral and you're listening and if the gospel's not the centerpiece of that funeral, if, if the pastor doesn't have a backbone, and love people enough to warn them that death is not an end. It's just the beginning either of an eternity of joy with Jesus or an eternity of righteous judgment. 
Pray for pastors doing funerals. It's, it's not an easy thing. But you would almost go to those funerals and think, I guess just dying gets me to heaven. <laughs> That's a great deal. I can live however I want. And when I die, I just go to heaven. And how do we hear that? Well, you know, Charlie, who died as an addict and a wife beater and abused his children and cheated on his taxes, and well, he's in a better place now. That's where this altar comes in. He sees these believers who have either suffered or been killed for their faith under a heavenly altar. In the Old Testament, the altars where the innocent sacrifices were killed to atone for the sins of the people. Oh, but this is a better altar. <laughs> this is a heavenly altar that represents a far greater sacrifice. And it was a sacrifice of the innocent Christ on the cross being punished for the sins of all who would trust in him. So what's that reminding us of? So notice that they're under the altar. So you really could say they've, they've come under the blood. These are men and women, boys and girls, who have trusted in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And so now they're under his divine protection. There's no more wrath. There's no wrath for the person who trusts in Jesus because the wrath they deserved landed on Jesus so that the forgiveness we don't deserve can come to us. It shows us there is only one way to heaven. You have to come by the blood of Christ. There's no other way. And that's one of these things that we learn from this heavenly picture. We're noticing that their sins are forgiven. God's judgment has been satisfied. They've been counted righteous in Christ and they've been adopted as sons and daughters. They're eternally safe and they're eternally secure with the Lord. And they followed in Jesus' footsteps too. And they were willing to die for their faith to show them, oh, you guys, there's a psalm that years ago, I'm older probably than three-quarters of everybody in this room, and we used to sing a song. It was from Psalm 63, and, and it, it went like this. Thy loving kindness is better than... Well, some other older people. <laughs> if you know it, sing with me. Thy loving kindness is better than life. Okay, now think about what we're singing. Um, the melody just really isn't the most appropriate for what we're singing. That's a song sung by a martyr. What is it saying? It's telling the world, you know, I know you're chasing after your heart's satisfaction in, in that relationship and after that dollar bill with a certain amount of education or reputation but you know what none of it will satisfy you his loving kindness it's better than life and I'll die to prove it it's a song of a martyr I don't know how the melody should go I don't know how that should go. I don't know what kind of song that should be set to. We'll let our, our worship leaders, maybe you could rewrite that song, guys. And uh, Anyway, let's, let's keep moving forward. But th that's what they've shown the world. That's what the blood of the martyrs does, is it shows the world there's something far better for your aching and, and restless heart 
than what the world can give you, and it's Jesus and his loving kindness. We've got to come to this place, if you're a believer, where what matters most to us is faithfulness to God. Parents, I don't know that there's any better thing we, we should be teaching our kids. What's most important, I know, listen, study hard. Yes, I mean, go after, let's, let's do your work as under the Lord. Learn for the glory of God. But the most, the most precious thing is not the grades you're getting, but the faithfulness to God that you're, that you're offering to him. It's faithfulness. And that's, that's what these people understood who are, who are in, under the altar coming by the blood. More than pleasure, more than leisure, faithfulness to God was the most important thing. And though they died physically, we notice, right, that they never truly died, but they went immediately into the presence of Christ. So that's just another encouragement from him. But there's a cry that they're crying out at the, at, at, from, the, from the altar. Oh, sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Okay, we got to really be careful with this because we're living in a world that's crying out for justice. I think 99% of the time what you're hearing is, I want vengeance. It's not justice. I want revenge. I want to be right. I'm tired of being under your foot I want you under mine. I think that's a lot of what comes forth as justice today. Well, that's not what these martyrs are crying for. They're not crying for personal revenge. Remember, these, though they're waiting for the resurrection and to receive their resurrected bodies, their souls are satisfied in Christ. <laughs> they're, they're not out for blood. They're, they're not trying to get back at those who persecuted them. They're crying out because of the ultimate injustice. I, I wish, oh, there's so many things. I'm going to be focused here. But if, if I were to ask you, what is the worst injustice on the face of the earth? I wonder what you would say. There's a lot of horrible ones, aren't there? There are legitimately horrible injustices that are happening in our world. But the ultimate injustice is that the innocent Christ died at the hands of the people he came to save. And, and, um, and, and people from generation to generation continue rejecting his offer of salvation because they don't believe they need him. And they don't believe, and they believe they could have a better life without him. That is the worst injustice. And oh, how I pray that the church would rise up with that sense of injustice. Because that's going to send us into this harsh world with the good news of the gospel. And that, that Christ hasn't come yet. And Jesus is still extending his nail-scarred hands to you today. Come to him. He's not done. He wants to save you. How long before the world sees that you're the one true God? How, how long before the world sees that you're a treasure worth living for and dying for? How long before you vindicate your name and righteousness? And oh Lord, how long before you fully and finally punish and put away evil? How long, oh Lord? The Lord comforts them. It's interesting, Barnabas, you're talking about rest today. The Lord comforts them by giving them a white robe and calling them rest. Rest. The white is representing their justification. We're going to talk about that at the conclusion this morning. It means that the greatest victory has already been won for a Christian. Your greatest need was that the just 
righteous wrath of God that your sins deserved. That's your greatest need. And your greatest need was met in that Jesus took your place and bore the wrath instead of you. That's your greatest need. And so, look, isn't this interesting? Because there's the importance of theology. And if you're visiting us today, oh my goodness, God's word is meant to stabilize you when you're having horrible self-doubts. When, when, you're, when you're thinking, maybe have I sinned for the 73rd time and, and oh my goodness, maybe 74 is the last, last try. There's this beautiful word called justification which is reminding you that your greatest victory is already won because not only does Jesus bear the sin and the punishment our sins deserved, but he also gives you what you don't deserve, and that's a righteous standing with God that comes as a free gift and that you could never earn for yourself. That'll stabilize your soul. You may not be able to explain a lot of other things, cancer and why somebody died so young and all those things, but one thing you won't have to be confused about, Jesus loves me, this I know. And so, so rest in their justification. Rest, you know, they call him sovereign Lord. Rest in God's sovereignty. And not just his sovereign, sovereignty. He's not like, he's not like Star Wars. He's not like that there's a force and there's a, it's, and, and, and you're, <laughs> oh, these are those, I reel it in, Billy, reel it in. Um, God's not just in control like some power. He's not in control just like, like some sort of impersonal gravity, gravitational pull. He's in control like a father. Now, especially for those of us who may not have had the greatest dad, wouldn't that be something? To be able to have peace in your home because someone who loves you and is willing to die for you is doing all he can to keep things under control. The Lord perfectly does that. To rest in his perfect timing. If, if what you're hoping for hasn't happened yet, it's, it's either that you're, you're asking God, uh, 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 what you're asking for is not uh, conforming to what scripture calls us to ask for. But if you're asking for good and godly things and you're not receiving them, all that is, this is the Lord saying, it's not time yet. And my timing is perfect. Rest in my perfect timing. Rest in knowing that his merciful patience, and that's go beyond ourselves here, rest in knowing that his merciful patience is accomplishing salvation for every people group. How do we know that? Well, let's, let's look. First, a quote here from De Dennis Johnson. He says, accompanying the worldwide spread of God's good news is the prolonged affliction of the church that bears this joyful message. The days on God's calendar are marked off one by one in the blood of the martyrs. Do you ever think of the second coming of Christ being related to when that last martyr, as an act of worship and trust and faith and love for those persecuting him, dies? When the last one dies, he'll come again. That's why never listen to anybody who sets a date about the second coming of Christ. I heard one guy, so I'm just quoting somebody here. I'm not encouraging this view, but he said, he said, 
don't be a dope and set a date. I don't, I, having been on the dope side, in, anyway, let's keep moving. So Matthew 24 goes further, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Oh, wow. So, so this, what seems like a delay from the Lord is actually a gift from the Lord. He's waiting because there are people he wants to still save. Listen, oh, if you're here today, we, and you don't know Jesus Christ, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. But if you've kind of wondered, I don't believe in all this Christian stuff, because look at how the world is, and everyone says Jesus is coming back, and he hasn't come back. <laughs> well, did you ever stop to think? It's because he's waiting for you. That's why he hasn't come back yet. That's why he hasn't come back yet. God's expressing his merciful patience because he will be faithful to leave none of the elect behind. His second coming has not happened because Christ is holding out those nail-scarred hands to offer you the gift of a new life through Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 3, 9 and 15, if you're wondering where I'm getting this, let's go. On. This really spells it out. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you. Not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance and, and regard the patience of our Lord as an opportunity for salvation. Just as our dear brother Paul has written to you according to the wisdom given to him. So, so good. So, so listen, I would encourage you. What are some applications here? Ask God to help you grow with the experience of your salvation in Christ being so wonderful that it would be worth dying for. I think that should be a prayer we pray. God, I'm, I'm a little nervous about the dying thing. Well, you wouldn't be if you really understood the treasure of being, being a son or daughter of the Most High God in Jesus Christ. You wouldn't be as scared of the dying thing if you knew that not a hair of your head will perish, even if your body dies. And don't the martyrs prove that to us? So ask God to experience Jesus maybe more wonderfully than you've ever known. There may be someone here, you, you've kind of quit reading your Bible because you've come to this place of thinking, you know, I, kind of, I know the story. I don't, I don't really need it anymore. Well, that just shows how much you don't know the story and how much you need to experience something so wonderful that he would be worth dying for. This is your call to die to yourself today. That's your, we, we should be living in that kind of a heartbeat every day. Dying to yourself daily is actually prepares us to if we would ever have to die physically for the Lord. And in what ways, I just sense that it's like this picture of Jesus wanting to just turn his eyes upon a few of you this morning. And, and let me ask you this. In what ways are you today How long, oh Lord, what your situation is? It might be a health issue that you thought would be cleared up, but it's actually the prognosis is getting worse and not better. A marriage situation that, Though maybe there's not a lot of yelling and bickering and those kind of things. The silence is deafening. There's not much intimacy. A lot of tasks. You do this, I do this. 
But just because you're not fighting doesn't mean there's not a problem. And deep in your soul, there's something that's going, how long, oh Lord? How long is this going to go on? You've got an adult child, and, and they were raised in church, and they walked an aisle, and they prayed a prayer, but, but as they left home, there is no sense that they have any clue or any personal experience with Jesus, no love for Jesus. And they've passed through their 20s, and they've passed through their 30s, and now they're their 40s or 50s. And, and you're going, oh, Lord, how long? I would encourage you to go back and take the, the instruction that Jesus gave the martyrs. Rest a little while longer. Rest in your justification. Rest in the victory you already have. Rest in my perfect timing. Rest that I'm in control as a father and not not just some distant deity or just some impersonal judge. Rest. And pray for my kingdom to come. I think those are some helpful points that we can get out of that. So now we transition, and, and it, this is coming back to what's happening. Uh, now the, now the, the, the lens goes forward, and we're looking at a future event. What we've been talking about now is all current events in terms of persecution and the death of the martyrs. But now we're looking at a future event. John will be shown in the breaking of the sixth seal that there will come a day when God's patience will give way to God's punishment. This patience won't last forever. Sin, Satan, evil, and rejection of Christ will not have the last word. God will have the last word. And so we see the righteous wrath of the Lamb in verses 12 through 17. Verse 12 says, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit. And when shaken by a gale, the sky vanished like a scroll and it's being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. These verses are either direct quotes or references to multiple Old Testament prophecies. Some of these things have already been experienced throughout biblical history. And I'll point out a couple of those in just a minute. This would have been very relevant for the first century church. And we always have to start there, don't we? It's it's just not, what does it mean for me today? We're going to misapply the word if we do that. We need to go back. What did it mean for that first century church, those seven churches that represented the churches of all generations? What what did it mean to them? Well, they understood some of these these Old Testament-like earthquakes and shakings, these traumatic demonstrations of of God in his holiness and in his judgment on on earth. Um, uh, There was, um, uh, uh, I I lost my my notes, so there was a massive earthquake um, and the author, the, the historian said, it was, he called it an earthquake and skyquake because it was involving not just an earthquake but also some volcanic action. And it would have been terrifyingly vivid to Asian Christians who had experienced two earthquakes like this that crippled the cities of Asia Minor in the first century. And then many of us would be more familiar in 79 AD of the, the eruption of Vesuvius that buried Pompeii in 79 the theological significance of earthquakes, it's rooted in the Old Testament. We get a real flavor of it in Exodus 19 when God comes down upon Mount Sinai and in all of his holiness and he's, and he's bringing the law. He's, he's telling us we're not God, he is God. 
There is a way to live, and, and, and going against that law is at your own peril. And there will be a just judgment for breaking his commands. And then in Isaiah 39 and Ezekiel 32 and Isaiah 34, we also see, so there could be some very literal fulfillments of this, but if we study our Old Testament well, we see that, that there was some figurative understanding of these, these uh, cataclysmic type world events. Um, the shaking and the falling is referencing the fall of earthly nations that were in rebellion to God. Expressions of the skies and heavens used to describe those who rule over people, those who are supposed to be lights in the sense that earthly government, hello, was supposed to be a reflection of God's judgment and mercy, not as a tool to dominate people and destroy. It's telling us that all these other kingdoms will fall and only God's kingdom will last. That's how you should watch the news. Only God's kingdom will last. All the wars, all this is happening because God is bringing down nations in rebellion to him. Nations seeking self-glory. And because all of this, creation has felt the effects of the fall. And you can see that in the verses uh, that, that follow that. Nothing in all creation will be able to stand in that day. Did you notice he said seven things that were shaken there? Seven, there's our number throughout Revelation. Seven things get shaken, and it's representing totality. There is no part on the earth that won't be affected by the second coming of Christ, the judgment of God, and the second coming of Christ. The, the earth, the sun, the moon, the stars, the sky, mountains, islands, nothing in creation, and nothing created at the hand of man. Nothing escapes. Mountains, the theologians highlighted the mountains because they are seen as the most unshakable things in the world. And God is saying that everything that mankind has come to rely on other than God is going to be shaken and brought down. So let's, don't, let's, now let's reel it back into our own hearts. Let's don't just look out there. That means God's going to be very loving and kind to allow us to experience a shaking of things we're trusting in or people we're trusting in more than the Lord. He'll allow that. That's what it means is mountains are coming down. What you thought would never change, what you thought could never be shaken, is going to be shaken and brought down. But it wasn't just all of these governments and those, these kind of images then in verse 15, it says, the, the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. Not only will all creation and what man has created not be able to stand in judgment, no one no one who has not come to trust in Christ as their Lord and Savior will be able to stand. And there won't be any place to hide from the judgment and wrath that, that our sins deserve. And notice that it, it describes seven kinds of people, right? Seven expressions of creation. Seven kinds of people. What is that telling us? No king, no great military leader, no rich person, no powerful person, no poor person, 
no slave, no free, no man, no woman, no child, no one will be able to stand who has not trusted in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Being poor doesn't earn you favor with God. None of these things will matter if you stand before the Lord having rejected Christ's offer of salvation. None of it will matter. And even though the worst thing that could ever happen to them. You ever hear this phrase? When, when somebody we love is just going off the charts and just twisting off. And, and we say, well, I guess they just haven't hit bottom yet. That's a bunch of baloney that, is, that, that has no sound theology attached to it. Hitting bottom is not salvific. Because you're dead in sin and transgression. You think you're alive. You're dead to God, but oh, you're alive. You're going to win the argument with your wife. You're going you're gonna to play little games and work. Oh, there's just so many ways we do go about it. This is the worst thing that could ever happen to anybody. If there's ever a time of hitting bottom, it's here. I want you to see how they respond. Final judgment is coming. All of these things are happening. And do they repent? You tell me. It's, I'm, it's, I'm not tricking you with a question here. Do they repent? They don't repent. Hearing and believing the gospel is the only way to be saved. If you're just going, well, you know, if my life gets harder, I'll maybe consider the Lord. <laughs> your heart is hard. That's the problem. Not your life getting harder. This judgment of God is revealing their sinfulness. They've tried to cover up their whole lives. Now they stand spiritually naked and guilty before God. But they don't cry out for Christ to cover them. When I got saved, it was like I, I, that's how I felt. Everything I had trusted in, all of my good works, all of my superstitions, all of these things were stripped away from me. And I saw the sinner I was. I was naked in my sin. Fully exposed to God, the judge, deserving the wrath that I should have received. And by his grace, I cried out, Jesus, save me. Save me. Because all of the other coverings that I've had in my life didn't work. And they certainly are not going to help me on the last day. They're not going to help me on the last day. But they don't ask that. They know they need a covering. Do you notice that? It's crazy. It's, it's moral insanity. They know they need a covering, but they ask for anything else to cover them except Christ. Even if the covering comes from being buried under mountains to escape the judgment their sin deserves. Wow. They wanted anyone but Christ for salvation. They wanted anything but Christ for salvation. They wanted their reputation to cover them. They wanted their education to cover them. They wanted their wealth to cover them, their good works, their, their Christless religions to cover them. They didn't want to be saved by Christ. How insane is this? They wanted to be saved from Christ. Oh, I'm not being no, this is just, I think the Holy Spirit is just saying this. And there's several of you in this room today who feel that way. God, I want to get out of here. Why are you so angry? There's something that's welling up in you and you just 
Why are you so angry against the Savior who's not real? Maybe he really is real. And he's reaching out to you and you keep slapping his nail-scarred hand away. Quote in your notes, their earthly securities will be ripped away so that they will appear spiritually naked before God's judgment seat on that last day. The earth dwellers have not trusted in the Lamb who was slain for the sins of the world. Therefore, they will have to suffer his destructive wrath and will not be able to withstand it. The gentle Lamb who was slain on the cross is now in an exalted position over the whole cosmos to, to deal out, to pour out his wrath because he's not only loving to his people, but he's also a just, just judge of his enemies. And that's why verse 17, very sober, isn't it? Verse 17, for the great day of their wrath has, has come, and who can stand? It's fearful. And I don't apologize. The Bible doesn't apologize for it. You should be afraid. You should flee to Jesus. Flee from the wrath to come. You don't need to fear the wrath of the Lamb toward you if you've placed your trust in the wrath that fell upon the Lamb for you. And let's close with that good news. The third point is the substitutionary death and resurrection of the Lamb. Revelation 5.9 says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. Uh, this, this is not Jesus just dying as a good man who is just a really loving guy. What a display of love. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I have a place for Jesus in my life. He was a real great lover. He was doing love. There was love here. But he was being slain as the wrath bearer of God. And there's no greater love than that. That somebody would be a substitute for you and be treated as though he were guilty of committing every sinful deed you've committed, having every sinful thought you've, you've had, every sinful motive and Jesus paid it all. Dear friend of ours, Rick Gamash, I, I, I would encourage you to Google Rick Gamash crucifixion narrative to read this whole excerpt. But let me just give you a little sense of what, what it meant for Jesus to bear the wrath of God in his, in his body on the cross. He says, at the top of the hill of Golgotha, the merciful centurion handed Jesus a cup, and Jesus sniffs the liquid, its wine mixed with myrrh. That was a mild narcotic to dull the pain. But Jesus is meant to feel all the pain. So he hands the cup back. Did you ever wonder why he rejected it? Because this is not the cup of the Father. Jesus is lifted on the crossbeam. Onto the post, he sags held only by the spikes in his wrist. Jesus designed, Jesus designed the medial nerves in his arms. 
that are working perfectly now, the pain shoots up those nerves and explodes in his skull as the crossbeam is set in place. His left foot is now pressed against his right foot. Both feet are extended, toes down, and a spike is driven through the arch of each. His knees are bent. Jesus immediately pushes himself up to relieve the pain in his outstretched arms, and he places his full weight on the spikes in his feet, and they tear through the nerves between the metatarsal bones. Splinters from the post peer his lacerated back. It's searing agony. Quickly, waves of cramps overtake him, deep, throbbing pain from his head to his toes. He's no longer able to push himself up, and, uh, and, and his knees buckle. He's hanging now only by his arms. His pectoral muscles are paralyzed as intercostals are useless. Jesus can inhale, but he can't exhale. His compressed heart is struggling to pump blood to his torn tissue. He fights to raise himself in order to breathe, and he sags back into silence, into countless hours of limitless pain. He looks up to his father, and his father looks back, but Jesus doesn't recognize these eyes. They pierce the invisible world with fire and darken the visible sky, and Jesus feels dirty. He hangs between heaven and earth, filthy with human discharge from all the beatings he's suffering and the bleeding he's giving. And, 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 but it's, it's, um, it's not just a, a filth on the outside of his body. There's this sense of filth on the inside with the guilt of human wickedness. God no longer speaks to God no longer speaks to him as a father, to a son, but as a judge condemning the guilty. Son of man, why have you sinned against me and heaped scorn on my great glory? Listen for your name in this list of sins. You are self-sufficient and self-righteous, consumed with yourself and puffed up, selfishly ambitious. You rob me of my glory. You worship what's inside you instead of looking out to the one who created you. You are a greedy, lazy, gluttonous slanderer and gossip. You're a lying, conceited, ungrateful, cruel adulterer. You practice sexual immorality. You make pornography and you fill with your your mind, you fill your mind with vulgarity. You exchange my truth for a lie. You worship the creature instead of the creator. And so you're given up to your homosexual passions, dressing immodestly, lusting after what is forbidden. With all your heart, you love perverse pleasure. You hate your brother and murder him with the bullets of anger fired from your own heart. You kill babies for your convenience. You oppress the poor and deal slaves and ignore the needy. You persecute my people. You love money and prestige and honor. You put on a cloak of outward piety, but inside you're filled with dead men's bones. You hypocrite. You are lukewarm, easily enticed by the world. You covet and can't have, so you murder. You're filled with envy and rage and bitterness and unforgiveness. You blame others for your sin, and you're too proud to even call it sin. You're never slow to speak. You have a razor tongue that lashes and cuts with its criticism and sinful judgment. Your words do not impart grace. Instead, your mouth is a fountain of condemnation and guilt and obscene talk. You're a false prophet leading people astray. You mock your parents. 
You have no self-control. You're a betrayer who stirs up divisions and factions. You're a drunkard and a thief. You're an anxious coward. You do not trust me. You blaspheme against me. You're an unsubmissive, disrespectful wife. And you're a lazy, apathetic, disengaged, and dictatorial husband. You file for divorce and you misrepresent the parable of my love for the church. The list of your sins goes on and on and on and on. And I hate these things inside of you. I'm filled with disgust and righteous indignation for your sin consumes me. Now drink my cup. And Jesus does. He drinks for hours. He drowns every drop of the scalding liquid of God's own hatred of sin mingled with his white-hot wrath against that sin. This is the Father's cup. Omnipotent hatred and anger for the sins of every generation, past, present, and future. Omnipotent wrath directed at one naked man hanging on a cross. Father can no longer look at his beloved son, his heart's treasure, the mirror image of himself. He looks away. Jesus pushes himself upward and howls to heaven. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there was silence. There was separation. And Jesus pushes himself up again and cries. It is finished. And it was. Somebody say amen. Amen. Every sin of every child of God has been laid on Jesus. And he drank the cup of God's wrath dry. Amen. Stand with me, would you please? As you're standing, you know the story didn't end there. On the third day, having totally conquered sin and God's wrath, Jesus rises from the dead. And he wants to give a new life to all who would simply receive him by faith. It's a free gift he offers. And he says that the justification, that the resurrection is actually to give you a justification in your walk with God. And that means not only is the wrath satisfied, not only is forgiveness extended, but God counts you as though you yourself owned. Well, you had, you'll, God gives you the very righteousness of Jesus Christ as a gift as though you earned it, but you couldn't. See, what does that look like, you guys? Because I mean, how, many, how many of you have been, you've been saved and it's like, oh, I'm so thankful I'm saved. Like Barnabas said, there were some things that took a while for him to be delivered of. There's some things that maybe, it's maybe for you it's anger or it's, I don't know what it might be, but aren't there times you go, Lord, I'm not changing. Doesn't feel like I'm changing at all. I'm sure not changing fast. I don't even think you could still love me. Well, you know what the resurrection proves? Here's what the, res- this is so cool. Here's what the resurrection is saying and justification is saying. So Barnabas, I'll, I'll Pick on you because we can pick on each other. 
so let's say Barnabas has a problem with anger and, and he's telling, I, I, God, I don't know how you could just continue to love me and forgive me. I, I just, just really was really cruel to my wife verbally. And I just keep doing this again and again. You must not care. And so here's justification. The Lord would look at Barnabas and say, Jesus paid it all. Which means he was tempted with anger too. And he didn't give in. And so he counts it like you never gave in. Is that awesome? I mean, is that unbelievable? What a savior. And then he says, it's not, it isn't, the good news isn't over yet because then before he ascends into heaven, he says, all authority has been given unto me. I'm giving you a new life that's worth dying for. All authority has been given unto me. And so now I'm sending you. Take this gospel, take this good news to this world that is dead in sin. And, and they will not, they cannot come to God unless God brings people uh, with the gospel to them. And it'll be worth dying for, y'all. It'll be worth dying for. Now, I know you're dying for Easter lunch. So can we stop and pray before we dismiss? Um, uh, if, if you're needing to go, we totally understand that. Josh, why don't you come up and, and we'll still close with a song. And if you need to go, and we, we, totally, we totally get it. But we probably, we probably should express our love for the wrath of God being satisfied on Jesus so that the righteousness of God could be ours through Jesus. We probably need to talk about that. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. There's some really tough things in this passage, but all they've really done is to clarify the treasure of Jesus and the gift of grace and how good it is to be a son and a daughter of the Most High God. <laughs>